Welcome travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. And this is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your not-so-humble guides on the quest for RPG adventures. Here at Tabletop Journeys, we are all devoted role players and storytellers at heart, and we absolutely love sharing our passion with you. On our show, we feature diverse tabletop RPG systems, demonstrating them through actual plays and breaking down the rules to provide you with tips, tools, and techniques to help you navigate them. We also love bringing the content creators behind these games into the studio to give you a peek behind the curtain with relevant and insightful interviews. Let us help you get the most out of your story, no matter what game world or system you're playing. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, diverse NPCs, and a focus on story over rules can make any campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. Hey, Danilo from Thinking Critically here. Thinking Critically is a chat show podcast where we take a single concept or idea and discuss what it means within the Dungeons and Dragons framework. Each episode features a different guest from the TTRPG community, and so far I've welcomed actors, designers, and professional DMs. Consider it an NPR-style variety bucket of thought-provoking analysis and humorous anecdotes, where we cover all sorts of things, including the nitty-gritty of how to balance encounters, the perception of D&D in popular culture, and the impact it has on mental health. My hope is that each episode helps you get the most out of your sessions, whatever side of the screen you sit on. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and visit me at thinkingcritically.co.uk. Welcome everybody to today's episode. So we are, as always, we are an excitable bunch and we are happy once again to be diving even further into the rules of Star Trek Adventures tonight. Very special guest on to go ahead and help us through through that part of the process. We'll introduce him in just a moment. But before we get there, Mr. Myers, Mr. Miller, good evening, good evening, good evening. How are you both doing tonight? I am having an amazing week. I actually started the week on vacation, came back from vacation, had a great day. The nine to five job has actually gone fairly swimmingly despite some chaos earlier today. But in the process of this week, I had the wonderful opportunity to join the cast of Continuing Conversations, their YouTube channel, record an episode. That was absolutely brilliant Monday night once everything is released and out there. Can't wait to talk about that more. Just a really rewarding experience that I actually shared with our guests this evening and uh, can't wait for more on that. How about you, Glenn? Where are you this evening in your travails and travels? Doing good. A little worn. It's been, it's been a busy week. We're getting ready to move. Tomorrow Tomorrow we head south for to Pennsylvania and we're headed to Gettysburg for a week and then we're going to hang a left and swing over to Virginia Beach to visit Trisha's sister again for a month. Nice. So it ought to be a hoot. Yeah, that'll be very nice. I mean, excited to have finally wrapped up our previous project, but no rest for the weary. I also really enjoyed diving into some of my research for our next project last night. I know. already have some fantastic (laughs) ideas. Even though we have already promised ourselves that we're not working on the next project yet, because we literally just sent our book out to Kickstarters yesterday. And I know I have certainly promised my spouse that I'm not working on the next book yet. That might be a little bit of a lie, and I've already started working on it, but that's not the point. The point is that we're taking some time off after sending our last book out to Kickstarters. Lee Winnie, much like you, my week started off fantastically. I actually got to run my first Star Trek Adventure game on Saturday, the uh, the first session of our Patreon actual play. A tremendous amount of fun. Glenn, you were in on that game. A very forgiving group of players uh, as I jumped through the rules for the first time here. You but, did great. Uh, really, we had really an inside man helping us with that, but you did great, Josh. That's true. Yeah. Pa- Patreon supporter and friend of the show, Joe, who is definitely was very helpful. Yeah. Very, very complimentary as I was going through there because I'd never run a game before. I feel pretty solid on the rules, but I was glad that I was able to spin a story, at least that, that you guys seem to enjoy. So that's uh, stuff. Yeah, it was hot. I can't wait for you guys to hear it when it comes out. You should check it out when it lands. 
All that to go ahead and say, so tonight we are going to, like I said, continue to dive into the rules in Star Trek Adventures. Tonight we're going to be tackling the kind of core concepts of momentum, threat, and determination. And for this discussion, uh, because the three of us are, again, fairly new to the rules, to so go ahead and get in there, we have brought in a ringer to, uh, to go ahead and assist us with this conversation. So everybody, I want you to meet Al Spader. Al Spader is from the writing team associated with Star Trek Adventures. Al, welcome to Tabletop Journeys. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Al Spader, a freelance writer for Star Trek Adventures. I've worked on, I think we've announced like four of my books so far that I've had my fingers in and yeah, many more to come. We're really excited with what the plan is for the future. Yeah, we're really excited to go ahead and see what else you guys have coming forward. But for first, first our listeners who maybe don't know you yet, throw out your bonafides. Who are you in the scope of Star Trek Adventures and how did you get involved with that project in the first place? All right. I was playing D&D 5th edition for a long time. It really wore on me and uh, COVID hit and a group of friends wanted to get together and we're like, let's do something new. And I was like, I've got this Star Trek Adventures game that I've been wanting to run for a really long time. And so I did that and we ran a campaign and we used a tabletop simulator on Steam. They had a really cool like mod in there where you could sit around the table and they had the Star Trek Adventures GM screen. And so we played around that and I took a couple of video clips of that and I started posting it on social media and whatnot. And that caught wind of Michael Dismuke from Continuing Conversations. And so he wanted to do a panel talking. It just so happened that Jim Johnson, the line director, was also on that panel. And when I was sharing that information and I was sharing my experience with 5th edition and writing for D&D Adventures League and things like that, randomly one day, Jim sent me a message. He's, this was back when uh, the Shackleton Expanse book was coming out. And he said, hey, could you look at this from a GM perspective? What do you think about the layout? What do you think's good? What do you think's bad? And so I took that like really seriously and went through and made a few suggestions that I thought were a little glaring. And he actually made those changes in the book. And then shortly thereafter, he asked if I wanted to write some mission briefs. So I did two packs of mission briefs. And then the player's guide and game master guide was looking for writers. So he brought me on board for that. It was pretty awesome. That sounds I've, fantastic. Yeah. I it's like the dream job. Yeah. have to absolutely thank you for your work on the Game Master's Guide because as I was getting started, that was one of the tools I went to first and found it exceptionally good at centering my head around the way I needed to approach this. It was just really good about almost less mechanical, though those elements are there, but it was almost more zen. It was almost like... There's a different way to process running a game like Star Trek Adventures RPG versus D&D. There's an alternate approach. I've clamored for a narrative game and a narrative storytelling game and a scene-by-scene RP-heavy game when you spend a lot of time playing the world's oldest or largest role-playing game. That's not the most natural transition until you have some guidance. And I found that GM's guide actually had that level of guidance and it wasn't directive or prescriptive. It was more just the way the pros hit the page. And I found that very good. It was very assuring and confidence building as I was working through the things I wanted to see in my own Star Trek stories. Yeah, I'll absolutely agree with that. And I did not, I'm trying to phrase, I'm trying to figure out how to go ahead and phrase this in a way that doesn't make it sound like I'm insulting you, Lilanika, because you said that from the very, very beginning. And I don't think I believed you. I honestly didn't think that I believed you that Star Trek lended itself to such narrative right out of the box, because I tend to be a pretty narrative storyteller anyway. You guys have played my games before. I tend to run a very narrative game anyway. Even in 5e. Right. Yep. But it was better in Star Trek. It absolutely was. It was easier to do it in Star Trek. Now, you uh, and I'm not- more in- I've always said you're an amazing storyteller and I've loved to watch you do it. But you seemed even more in your element running Star Trek, I, yeah. I will say, yeah. despite not knowing the rules that well yet, just for the narrative <laughs> piece and the yeah. mystery that you created. And we were yeah. you were balancing the balls that we kept putting up in the air for you. You did fantastic. <laughs> yeah. for, for years, we've talked on this show about how much 
at least the two of us and Glenn, to some extent, you have leaned on our World of Darkness, White Wolf, Vampire of the Masquerade elements to get the narrative things that we wanted. Like we had so much fun doing that through our college years that we needed those elements to make the standard fantasy world game work for us yeah. the way we wanted to storytell. But at the end of the day, we put so much of those other elements in all of our games, no matter how hard we would try to attach to a module or do a thing, it was always homebrew. It was an excessively homebrew, to be honest. And the difference here with STA is I don't even have to homebrew to make this work. Yeah. Like it is my natural element without quote unquote breaking the rules. Yeah. And that was so liberating. That's to me the big key. Al, I want to ask you, like being the being the the in-house mechanics guy, what is it that you think about the STA mechanics that does that? Why does this happen? Or, so yeah. I guess my yeah, I think that's a really good question, actually. And you know, Nathan Dowdell, who created the 2D20 system, wanted it to be very malleable, very adaptable to different IPs and whatnot. And I think one of the things that made it so adaptable is the fact that when you're building a character, you put words on the page. You put numbers on the page. And I think that lots of times when you put words on a page in a role-playing game, they're just words on a page. They don't really carry much meaning. Whereas in the 2D20 system, words on a page have mechanics that go with them. And you can choose to use those mechanics if you wish, or you can choose to just be narrative with it. When you look at focuses and values and things like that, those are words that have mechanics that drive the game if you're into rolling dice, right? But also if you're into just telling a story, you can just quote a value and have that progress the story. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that really helps Star Trek Adventures create more of that narrative feel honestly is just the fact that they straight up tell you're building effectively a television episode. And it's supposed to be built with that kind of a plot with ending scenes and dramatic cliffhangers and it's designed just by that nature to be narrative like a television episode would be and i think that automatically puts you in the right mindset we've watched so much star trek our a lot of us have watched so much star trek our whole lives <laughs> and we're so familiar with the concept of an episode bro i can play an episode i can be in that scene yeah and it just helps it be more narrative because you watch star trek and it's not always about pulling out your phaser or your bat lift it's yep. dialogue yeah, absolutely. And I think that, so we're going to dive in here actually now to the core part of the episode to go ahead and really start breaking apart these mechanics because the first two mechanics that we're going to talk about tonight, I think really help set up that narrative flow. And Leonika builds on what you were saying about how, and Al, you too, where it's as a storyteller, these are things which are available to me and I don't need to roll dice to get them. So we're going to start tonight with momentum and threat, which are somewhat related, but different kind of, different kind of mechanics. And so Al, Let's start with momentum, because that's the player-centric one. Talk to us about what momentum is, where does it come from, and how do players best use that to go ahead and modify what the, what's going on? I think the big fad in a lot of newer role-playing games is these kind of meta-currencies that can dictate how powerful a success can be, right? And what Nathan built into the 2D20 system is that um, you have a difficulty of a task you're trying to complete, you roll a check, if you get a number of successes equal to that difficulty, great, you did awesome. If you get more successes, every success you get beyond the difficulty of a task gets turned into something called momentum. And there are a couple of different ways momentum can be used in the game. The first thing is you can use momentum right away for immediate momentum spends, which might be adding damage to an attack, finding additional information out about a scene, and things like that. If you don't have anything to do with your momentum right away, it goes into a pool, and that, that pool can max out at six momentum, and anybody in your party can use momentum from that pool to buy dice, to create advantages, and things like that as they move forward. The cool thing about momentum is it really it really shows how your heroes are starting to do better, right? And when you think about your three-act format, like Glenn was talking about earlier, it makes sense that you like build up this momentum and then when you exhaust it like that's when your story starts to come down a little bit right we're talking about rising action and falling action i 
absolutely love that answer. And as you were saying that, something occurred to me. About a year or so ago, we were collectively here at Tabletop Journeys working on a project, and we've been writing for a while as a group. And it's come up a few times, and we've always tripped over this one thing, and that is when we do specific skill checks and want to write in levels of success. That has been a challenge in our freelance work because it's not inherent to D&D, and it dawned on me just as you were speaking – that we have been trying to force momentum into everything we've done for probably 20 years <laughs> because it is so innate to the way we game. And if I didn't love this game so much, I absolutely would love it that much more in this moment now that that realization has come to me. The best parallel that I can make, and I'm, this is one of those obscure World of Darkness systems that not everyone is familiar with, but way back in the Wayback Machine, when the original rules for Hunter the Reckoning came out, there was a metacurrency like you were talking about that hunters could get called conviction. And the way that they got conviction was basically by acting the way their character would act. And it was a purely a judgment call by the storyteller. If you had a, if you had, I'm trying to remember the names of them now, but you if you had one of the super physical fighter types and that super physical fighter type took out a monster, they would gain conviction, that kind of thing. And conviction was used to power higher level abilities so that they could do the thing that they were meant to do more, better, faster, harder, whatever, right? And so momentum is very similar to me to that kind of a mechanic where it's like the more that they act like Starfleet officers and the more that they succeed, the more momentum they get. And the more momentum they get, the more they can act like Starfleet officers and succeed and everything like that. It's got great parallels to real life too though if you're on you don't have to be on a starfleet mission but if you're working on a task heck it could be yard work but if everything's just going <laughs> right I, but it literally could that's how much you could relate to real life if everything's going right and you're having a great day you feel good about it yeah. the next thing goes better and the next thing goes better and you just get on a roll and that's what momentum represents whether it's you're mowing the yard driving NASCAR or adventuring through space on a Federation starship. It's like I, piloting through a board cube, little things. Yeah. Small things, big things. It doesn't matter when you're doing good. You feel good. You do better. Yeah. So it, it makes yeah. total sense that you get on a roll and you just keep it going. What I was most enamored with uh, on Saturday when the team was playing is that the momentum started off pretty small. You guys did not have a lot of momentum for the first part of that game because pretty standard three act format. Basically, you spent that entire act without a lot of momentum. You gained some, but a lot of it was because you guys weren't succeeding an awful lot in that first part of the mission. There were a lot of variables being thrown at you. There were a lot of checks that you guys were making, especially poor Dave, the ship, the, the engineer there, could not roll his way out of a wet paper bag, unfortunately. And there was a lot I of threat being conspiracy everywhere. Yeah, I saw conspiracies <laughs> everywhere. And it was just, that was not a good place for him not, to be. Not too many spoilers because this episode will air before that actual play airs. So. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to spoil like what his conspiracy theories were or whether right. they were right or wrong but they were there but then once you guys started gaining momentum and specifically once you started gaining momentum and using it to gain more information about the things that you were doing that was mm -hmm. the thing that was game changing because all of a sudden things that you thought were not true or things that you didn't know were true, all of a sudden started making a lot more sense and that was just a fabulous way to go ahead and use the mechanic so, so I love that particular piece of it now yeah, and I think like when you talk to new game masters, a lot of them are like, what do I do? My players are getting so much momentum and I'm thinking to myself, good, this is part of the storytelling. Yeah. There are a lot of other games out there where the game master player dynamic is a lot more adversarial than it is in Star Trek Adventures, right? We want you to be fa a fan of every one of your heroes and for you to see your heroes succeed, right? And so you, we want you to push them. We want you to challenge them so that when they come out the other side, they'll be changed and they'll be excited about the changes that they went through. So yes, your characters, your players should be generating momentum. And that means that sometimes their momentum pool is always going to be full. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Luminique, I wanted to ask you, so having run through the starter set, how is the use of momentum guided through that process? And when you were running that, when you were running those game sessions, how did you find the momentum kind of ebbed and flowed and contributed to the storyline on that front? Do you feel like it helped them move through it faster or how did that ebb and flow? So certain players took them a while before they realized how it worked. 
very similar. We had our Patreon good friend Joe, who is an STA super fan. He actually approached me and answered a lot of questions for me before I we started actually running. Before I actually met him, I just met him on a Facebook group and Star Trek Adventures Facebook group, and he would answer questions or some of the comments that I would make on various things, whether it be just a "Hey, I love this Star Trek meme" or "Hey, I." What do you think about this idea? And in that process, I got a real strong feeling that this is a person that I have a, a Star Trek kinship with. Like we like the same types of things. We want to see the same types of things happen in story. And that really worked well. So once he started using momentum, other people realized, oh, I can use it for that. Excellent. And then they started using it for those types of things. And initially it was – I'm going to buy extra dice to be successful here. Then it was, I'm going to use this to buy that extra bit of information on this already successful task, like the immediate momentum spends. And once that happened, then all of a sudden, all of the players in the games, both starter set sessions I ran, and Joe was only in one of them, once one person used it, then somebody else knew it. And then in the session where Joe was not present and they started using it, I mentioned at some point, you can also use this for other purposes. And that went wonderfully. As a storyteller, watching, and we were not live, we're at, we're video playing, but I could see the sparks light up. Like it's almost like the dilithium crystals glowed right before warp engaged. And these folks just loved it. Like, friend of the show, Dave Riddell, when he decided to max out everything and he just went to town uh, in, in this one situation. Folks, I refuse to spoil this because when you listen to this actual play and you see what our Andorian engineer did in this scene, it blew everybody's socks off. It was amazing. Just amazing. And I just loved it. It was it, Momentum is such a game-changing thing, so much so that when I'm not playing a 2D20 system, I'm going to find ways to basically utilize that type of system in those games. However, I have to jury rig it to do so because I want that level of engagement. And that's really the key with momentum. It demands, it, cre it creates, demands, and exemplifies and propagates engagement with the game and the story. And... If you can do something mechanical that does all of that's as simple as this, game, set, match. And the game I played, my very first game this past weekend with Josh and the Patreons, Momentum was the game changer that we're talking about. Yeah. And it also created that extra resource management piece. But it doesn't have to be micromanaged. And that's one of the things I loved about it. You generate momentum easily enough. The, you can talk the guy in your party, or at least we did, talk the guy in your party who's like, I'm not sure if we should spend it yet, because you're going to make more. Because yeah. every time I needed to succeed, because if you need two successes, you got to have enough dice. I'd spend momentum or threat to get extra dice, but then I'd roll really well, and I'd, we'd succeed and get three or four more and momentum. get your momentum back, yeah. That was right. the, so that I was get back the what I just used. Found. Yeah, yep. is if I spend one momentum to get that extra dice, depending on, yep. on the difficulty, and if it's something I'm really good at, chances are pretty good that I'm going to get that momentum back when I spend it. So once you figure out that part of the economy, it's okay, I can utilize the economy behind momentum pretty easily. Really pick, kick it up to the next level is when you start saying, all right, so what are you doing to push yourself? What is this momentum yeah represent explain your action how are you doing this in such a way that you know you are you are using the momentum that your team has built give me an explanation of what this scene looks like yeah and i think that's really when you start seeing momentum's effect on the story it was my first game and some of the other folks second game we're not that far into it yet but it was little things like i spent threat instead of momentum but what does that look like yeah. Since I made the situation more dangerous while I was trying to check this guy out, I, I didn't try to do it or I failed to do it sneakily. So I was yeah. basically just eyeballing him and sizing him up, yeah. which is a threatening kind of thing. And that's where the threat came from. Yeah. So we did some of that, which was great. It was a whole I lot will of say, fun. And with the momentum in particular, because that the because the ramp of the game had was basically like exponential right it's like it started off real slow and then but from the point again because i was running like a mystery right and from the point that they started piecing together all the various clues that they'd got and actually started figuring out 
what the mystery even was because that was kind of the best part is that they weren't even sure for the first half of the game that there was a mystery to be solved they were convinced that they were just like no we're just all going nuts we don't know what's actually going on here yet but it's not that whatever it is whatever poor poor andorian engineer whatever you think is going on is not correct (laughs) and then once they figured out what the mystery actually was and they started spending the momentum like it was inherent right it's like they didn't need to explain why they were getting momentum because it was like they had just kind of started piecing together these clues and the players had momentum it wasn't even that the characters had momentum the the players had momentum all of a sudden yeah it was was so great and that's the amazing thing about a meta currency is yeah. it is supposed to be the players that are that that are having that moment and yeah. then that impacts the game not the other way around and i think that's where some other game systems with other things that might be inspirational fail is because they don't connect that particular set of dots yeah so, Glenn, you opened the door to threat. So let's talk about the much like the force has the light side and the dark side, much like Harry Potter has Dumbledore and Voldemort. Every bit of momentum also has threat on the other side of it. That's the storyteller game master equivalent of momentum. Al, t- talk to us about threat. What is what's the magic behind threat as it relates to and as it conflicts with momentum? When I came into Star Trek Adventures and I was reading about threat and I was learning about threat and I was like, I've been a game master for 25 years. Like, uh, why couldn't I just do this stuff without threat, right? A good GM can balance an encounter without spending a meta currency and things like that. I was very confused about it. And then after playing for a bit, I started to understand the give and take between threat and momentum a little bit more. And because it's such a narrative tool for a GM to use, it's good to have be out and open and honest with your players about it. So threat essentially is the GM's momentum. And the thing about it is the GM always starts with a pool of threat, which is a little bit intimidating, right? (laughs) And I think that game masters can use threat in the same way that players can use momentum, buying dice, dealing extra damage, adding more bad guys to a scene. However, I think that threat is really used well to start creating that rising action in spending two threat to put a scene trade in that maybe all of a sudden climbing this ladder is a little bit more difficult for some reason. Little things like, oh, your communicators aren't working. Here's a scene trade. Things like that, I think, really start pushing the characters in a new direction. Yep. And that's one of the things that I really like to use threat for is to manipulate a scene to make things more challenging for the characters, not to make them impossible, not to try to kill them, but to make it scary enough so that when they are successful, they'll be like, oh man, we made it. You know what I mean? I think that's really a big key with using threat in a way that, uh, that is not like vicious against your players. Like I said earlier, you want to be your player's biggest fans. You want to put them through hell but you want to come out on the other side. Yeah, yeah. That, that that is that is the big key with threat. And I think the one thing you can do is just build a rapport with your group, show them, get them to trust you, show them that I'm not trying to kill you. Like yeah. you just got to use this talent that you have because I use so much threat. And yeah. don't you feel awesome about that? That was my favorite use of threat was not so much in the, oh, here's the big scary thing. Although we have plans for big scary things that involve a lot of threat later, but it was more in this quest it was to go ahead and like the little inconvenience, the, all the players are in a room talking and something happens outside of the room that they need to attend to. So they can't finish talking about their plans or they can't talk more about the clues or anything like that because now something else is happening and they need to go attend to that. That was, I think, where I loved using threat more than anything else. It's just the, uh, it, it wasn't like a brick wall that they can't climb over, but somebody was throwing bricks at them kind of thing. Okay. Absolutely agree. I found that a couple things. My players tip in the first session I ran, and I'm going to, try to do this without too many spoilers they rolled well enough that we didn't get a lot of complications and when certain things happened in that starter set and i utilized a s- small amounts of threat they didn't create a lot of the situations early and early on to generate more threat so there was a point in time where i was 
absent any threat. I had actually spent out. And I remember saying, very similar to what you were mentioning, Al, that good GMs know how to do certain things, turn the knobs and dials to ratchet up a bit of the tension, and we do that anyway. But I remember saying, I don't have the threat to spend, so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to let them have their moments. And I do think it was amazing because I didn't control that their roles and their gameplay, the way they approached things really controlled that ebb and flow and how the how the quote unquote threat and the tension ratcheted up. Sure enough, as things got further and further along, they felt the need because they were also running out of momentum to give me that threat. And by the end, there was this interesting interaction in the final scene where there is some conflict back and forth for moments during a round, they would have no momentum or, and I would have threat or vice versa. This kind of went back and forth and you could see that, that you could feel that type of television show action sequence where nobody has the upper hand, but it keeps, but it's going back and forth. It's going back and forth. And then, Towards the end, in order to get what they assumed was a big win, they gave me just enough threat for me to do one thing. And when I did that, everybody looked at their screen simultaneously and went, what? (laughs) (laughs) There was a collective, what just happened? What did we unleash? And that moment was pure gold. But it was also... Pure. I want everybody to focus on that part of it because that this meta currency was being used back and forth to create that moment. It was not a question of was I just a fantastic GM who did this thing at this time to make this happen, or were they really good players who just really enjoyed a specific moment? It was something we collectively created through this back and forth. I don't think I could have had a moment with all of that feeling in any other game system without the way this interacted. Glenn, as a player, what was your impression of the threat pool and what it represented and what it could potentially represent to you at the table on the other side there? Because you could see how much threat I had. You could see little moments when I used it here and there. What was your impression of it? You'd like to think that I saw it on the screen, but that would mean I actually figured out where it showed up because I never realized that it did. Okay, that's a bad um, example. Then, but that's <laughs> I will say that I went into the game with an understanding of threat as currency, but not an understanding of threat in terms of how it was going to feel during play. And during play, it did exactly what it's supposed to do. I came in planning on, because you don't start with momentum as a player, that the DM gets threat, so what's with that? But at the same time, if the storyteller didn't have threat, how would you have an episode? There wouldn't be any danger to overcome. And that's the way I saw it. I'm like, okay, I can make the situation worse to get an advantage right now and deal with that later. And I loved that aspect of spending threat instead of momentum and embraced it straight on at the beginning. I think I gave you three threat in my first two two tasks before (laughs) I started generating a momentum. There was one point, the game started with 10, because of some, again, some exceptionally poor rolling by poor Dave, I was up to 12 almost immediately. I started spending it down, and then, yeah, then you guys started spending, like, giving me a lot of threat to go ahead before you had momentum. Yeah. Yeah, Because if we haven't made that clear yet, one of the cool things about threat is it can be spent in place of momentum to buy those extra dice when you need to succeed. So if you're out of momentum, you can spend threat instead, effectively giving weapons to the DM in exchange for enough dice to succeed right now. You don't know how those weapons are going to come back at you. And that was fun and exciting, too. It like added for that bit. It's, we want to spend the threat because that could come back to bite us. But overall, I think it added to the tension of the game and it did exactly what it's designed to do. It created that sense of threat and the fact that the storyteller has to spend and then if they spend out, like Lee Winika did, in his story, I really liked hearing your story, by the way, Lee Winika, is from a player's perspective, would the back and forth have gone on as long as it did in a game where you were arbitrarily deciding when it ended? I can't see that it would have. No one knows. But because there's a mechanic there, the story plays out how it plays out. As long as you stick to the threat momentum mechanic, you can still come up with ways to, add, to keep the episode interesting because you've got to. But it provides a mechanic for that back and forth to let it play out instead of 
I'm going to go out on a limb and say it intrinsically makes it less railroady, even when you're running a linear plot line. And the players know what's going on. They know when you spend threat and it's yeah. all on the level. So it's not, you just did this because, you know, yep. it's because you gave me enough threat to do but it with. L- let's look at just one singular use of threat, and that is to increase the number of bad guys that you're facing, right? I'm going to go ahead and spend threat to go ahead and add more bad guys into this particular encounter to make it a little bit more difficult. If you did that in Dungeons and Dragons, if I if you were fighting a horde of goblins and you got through that horde of goblins and then all of a sudden there was another horde of goblins behind it, the players would look at that and be like, oh, okay, wait a minute, what's going on here? Even though it could be totally legit, like whatever. But here where there is threat involved and it is an upfront meta currency. As a storyteller, you can be like, you know what? I want this to be a little bit more difficult, so I'm going to go ahead and take some of my resources. It almost takes the storyteller and makes them a pure player, as opposed to the I'm the storyteller and you are the players. It really breaks down the screen so that we're all kind of playing together. And yeah, one of one of you is adversarial and the rest of you are not, but that's okay. You know what I mean? And that's, I think, really kind of where the magic is on that. Yeah, I agree with that. The whole us playing together thing is a really big deal. If you think about it as like a director and actors on a television show, right? The director isn't an adversary of the actors, right? The director is trying to work with the actors to get the best shots, to deliver the best lines and to execute this story, right? And if we go back to what Nico was saying earlier about how this really models a television show, that's what threat does for you. You know what I mean? Yeah, there there was a moment where I chose not to use threat, but I saw the anticipation on everybody's face. There was a scene that took place and everybody was waiting for me to say, now more bad guys show up. They were waiting for that because I had enough threat. I could have put in some more, but I didn't want there to be more bad guys in that situation. I knew what was coming next. The scene pretty much ended in that way. And they were a little shocked that I didn't use the spend then. And at one point, certainly during the conflict scene, as we began around, one of the players would say, oh, by the way, we have X and he has Z. That was neat hearing that because everybody was paying attention. Again, a mechanic that's creating and propagating engagement in the scene. I did not feel at any point I needed to get somebody's attention in any of the scenes because everybody was patently involved, even if it wasn't their turn, because whether or not somebody had enough dice, whether or not they wanted to do a help action so that they had another chance to gain more momentum for the team or what have you, everybody was involved. At several points, it was who's going to help, not Oh, you need help? Nobody had to ask for help. (laughs) It was actually more of a who's going to (laughs) help kind of situation. And again, engagement. That is the name of the game for us game masters is how do we get people to want to be involved in every element of this game? And this is these are a pair of mechanics that do a lot of the heavy lifting for you. Yeah, and you saying wanting to help the assist mechanic is a whole nother ball of wax that you need to spend another episode on. Because <laughs> it's, exactly, we could spend the whole, so we'll, whole episode so we're, on task we're assist. We're penciling you in out. Do you want early access to every Tabletop Journeys episode? How about exclusive content? live broadcasts, and the chance to throw dice with your favorite hosts and fellow fans. Or, heck, do you just want to support the show? Join our Patreon today at www.patreon.com slash ttjourneys. We have tiers to fit any budget for a monthly commitment, or you can make a one-time contribution to the cause. We love doing the show for y'all, and support helps us keep creating and producing great content for you. So join us today at www.patreon.com slash ttjourneys. One thing I did want to throw in before I know that we are we're yeah. talking about moving over to determination here in just a minute, Josh, is like, so it's recommended usually that a GM starts with two threat per character that's just a recommendation right if you're doing a more casual episode that is like a shore leave episode you could start with one per player if you're doing like a season finale a big epic finale you could absolutely start with three threat per character you know what i mean that 
number that two per player is just a recommendation and consider what narrative you're trying to tell to determine how much start you're starting with. Sure. Yeah. And I will say that that is one thing that I had a different experience than Lee Winika did because I never ran out of threat. I always had plenty to go through, but I think honestly, part of that is because of some unlucky dice rolls that kind of kept my pool bigger than it needed to be. I think at one point I was up at 12 or 13. I probably didn't go any lower than about five. So I was thinking about that. I was like, okay, if I would run this mission again, would I have started at two per? And I think that I would have because had they not rolled as poorly as they did at the beginning of the adventure, I would have needed the threat, not to keep things moving, but to keep things interesting, to keep things the way that they did. Thinking about in that that one scene in particular when they're in the room and they're talking about stuff and they're trying to go ahead and piece together what may be going on and they're having this little conference. Threat gave me the ability to break that up and keep them from figuring stuff out, <laughs> which is a nice use of it. So, Yeah, one really good use of threat is by spending two to create the complication range to advance that by one. So, you know, if you know that you're tr- like you're in that second act and you're starting to build to this finale, you could spend four threat and make the complication range 18 to 20. And then if they want to roll five dice, they're really way more likely to get complications. And that really helps build that, that upward slope as well. Yeah. Before we moved on from threat, I did have a question for Al. Just, I didn't read the GM rules on threat until today. Because uh, I was starting out as a player, so I focused on the player side first. But in reading the different ways that the GM can spend threat, which I had an idea of from watching and listening to Josh spend it during the game, adding bad guys, buying dice, all of the ways that players use it is pretty, pretty self-explanatory. But the complications, adding complications or doing the full reversal, which is the, where my question is going to come in, was the most interesting. And Josh did do it wasn't a reversal but he did end a scene on us and dictate I the did. end of it so, but it wasn't quite a reversal but i was going to ask you just to help me picture it in your play experience what's your favorite reversal where a storyteller whether it was you or somebody else spent enough threat to throw a massive change into the scene just for an example so it's only really happened twice in my game it was really a it was again you, this it was the epic climax and it was actually with supporting characters and not our main cast there was like one main cast member but they were doing their the b plot exploring a base around a decaying star and basically it was one of those things where everyone just kept failing their roles and kept failing their roles and so like realistically speaking it, we they all should have died like all the supporting characters and whatnot, but the GM knows that we're co-storytelling and the fact that we're in a universe where weird things happen. So they actually paid uh, the reversal to save the supporting characters. So what ended up happening was they paid the threat for the reversal and said, all right, the supporting characters are going to survive this, but you have to narratively explain how they get out of this and get back to the ship. And we added that to the end of our story. It was really cool. Nice. But like, it's a really hard mechanic to get right, I feel, because it's hard to not feel like a gotcha moment. I feel like you see it a lot more on the, the Stargate television show than Star Trek, where they get to this big climax and all of a sudden there's a blinding white light and then everybody is just back at the base and they're talking about what happened. That's a reversal. You know what I mean? The scene you were talking about, so the threat that I spent in that moment was not to, so I dramatically ended the scene right there, but the threat that I spent was in effect to go ahead and introduce a new element. And the element was that you as the Star Trek crew that were coming up weren't going to be able to talk first. That the other, that the person you were going to talk to was going to talk first. He was in the middle of his monologue and he was able to go ahead and say, but don't you even try to go ahead and do it. That was, that's, that was what I used the threat was to go ahead and take away your, your conversational initiative, basically. Got you. Whereas if he was to do a reversal, you two might be having your conversation back and forth. And then all of a sudden, I drop my 10 threat to do a reversal. (laughs) Now there's a Klingon battle cruiser bombarding. uh, Right, exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah. That'll interrupt that that'll interrupt the conversation. Yeah. 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 Like so it's like this is no longer the focus. There is a different something happening. It's a <laughs> exactly. complete yeah, it, yeah, like a scene change immediately. Cool. Cool. So determination. Now this is the one that I think is a little bit more ephemeral than the other two. Determination is basically it, it's a much more limited meta currency than momentum and threat. What is determination and how do players use it now? So determination, basically everybody starts a game with a point of determination. Sometimes you can start with more depending on if you did character advancements and things like that. But determination is basically, uh, it's a way to push your character through a specific scene or scenario where they push themselves to the limit. And the way that this happens is by using your values So every character has four values on their sheet. And these are really like statements about what a character believes. And these values are always changing, right? As you progress through your career in Starfleet, your values might change. You might get married you might have a kid. And like, just like in real life, what you valued in your 20s might be different than what you value in your 30s. But the way it works in Star Trek Adventures is if you are in a scene and you really need to get a success, and you want to push yourself to your limit, you can look at your values and say, hey, this is really something that I believe in, right? My team is, or my crew is my family, and my crew is about to die. So you know what? I'm going to spend determination. I'm going to quote that value. And when you do that, there's a couple of different things that you can spend determination on, including some re-rolls, taking additional actions. The big one is you can purchase a free D20 in your roll that is assumed to have rolled a one. So that basically gives you two automatic successes on a task, which is really awesome. So that's the typical way that you use determination. You can also use determination by challenging a value. So if you get yourself into a situation where that value that you have, maybe you're questioning it, or maybe you're acting opposed to it. You can say, I'm challenging this value and spending my determination. You do the same thing. Maybe you buy your extra die to get your two free successes. Maybe you take an extra major action, whatever you wish. But now that value actually gets erased from your sheet and you have to replace it with something new at the end of the session. So determination in general is very connected to the values that you give your character. Yeah. So I want to dive into that last bit a little bit just to talk about how that can be used narratively, right? Because again, we're talking about Star Trek Adventures, super narrative system. How can we use that narratively? Do you find that it is effective to drive that from the game master seat? Or is that really something that sings most when it's driven from the player challenging their own determination as opposed to like the storyteller saying, hey, here's the situation that you're in. Here's how you reacted to it. How does that play to your value? So... I think it's a, again, it's a co-story storytelling thing, right? I think it's my job to try to put you in a situation where either you are thriving in a value or you are challenging a value. I really like pushing people to challenge values in my game. And as a GM, it's good to know that I always ask for a character sheet from every, a copy of a character sheet from every one of my characters. So I can look at, oh, they have this value. This might come into play this session. However, when we get into that situation, I'm not going to be the person to tell the player that applies to them. I'm going to let them figure out what their character would be doing and let them think, well, this says right here, I believe that the crew is my family and the crew is in trouble. So I can I use this value to spend my determination? And so I think that like the player's job is to recognize when things apply. It's my job to put them into situations where they might apply. Yep. That's a absolutely brilliant answer to the question. And it is something that I heard previously. I think you may be, it may even have been from you. You've spoken on that before. What I did when I was running our session zero process with our players, because we have a very large player base. We have over 10 players in this game. That's why there's two of us GMing the game and we're running two episodes a month because we want 
everybody who as many people have the opportunity to play as possible. But so one of the first things I did when I realized our player group was going to be that big was try to create a situation where basically tossing around the character sheets would be not be the issue. So I created a spreadsheet and I actually put in the values and saved it in our Google Drive. So Josh and I both have access to that. And the idea being as we write our episodes and our missions, we are actually having discussions because we co-write together. We have discussions about, okay, in this mission, once we determine which players are going to be in which mission, now what can we do to to adjust the plot to make sure we hit on the values for the players who will actually be in that session? So what you described is part of our actual episode process. So like we we literally cannot tell you 100% about any game before we've assigned, before we know which players are going to be in that session. At that point is when we start to solidify that formless bit, even though it may have some structure to it, a lot of the pieces of that form afterwards, because then it's okay okay, here's who we have. How are we going to challenge those values? How are we going to institute challenges and tasks that lean into some of the foci that are involved with these particular players? Those are the kinds of things that we're doing in that process. And it's specifically because we want to see determination used. We want to see values get challenged. From a GM standpoint, I would recommend to other GMs is be very present while characters are being built. While anybody can have characters built and bring them to a game, having a character building session, whether it's part of session zero or a separate session, dealer's choice. But I think it's instrumental to to see the character creation process that your players are doing so you know where their head's at as they're building these characters because that's going to inform the types of stories you want to tell. If people just come to your table with characters, I think it's a little bit harder to lean into those things. Yeah. Your point about not knowing exactly where the trajectory is going to be as you're planning a session before you know the players is really well taken because Again, without too many spoilers, my game session is infinitely different if, for example, Heather, who plays the ship's doctor, with the values that she has, she made a decision towards the end of the game that very much, and I see Glenn nodding his head, like she made a decision that really altered the trajectory of how that end game was going to go. Because what happened was going to happen anyway, but the way that her value played into it, very much it solidified how that was going to work in my head as soon as she right. made the decisions she was going to make. Because her acting on her value actually gave away to lead us toward the la- towards the last bits of exactly. the mystery to help us put the pieces together. Yeah, and there's no way you could have planned that. None of us knew she was going to yeah. do it. She just threw it out there. And Hell, I didn't know she you, was going to do it. You put the pieces together, and <laughs> that yeah. I mean, it didn't tie every, tie a neat little bow and everything. We still had some work to do to figure it out, but yeah. it took us from a position where we were throwing hail marys to figure out the mystery at the last minute before yeah. everybody left the station. Yeah to actually having some leads to follow. Yeah, that was yeah. fantastically timed. It was, I, I can say, know. as a player, I've gotten to points in an episode with my character that I had no idea that's where I was going to go. Um, my main character was a young upstart con officer. He was a smart aleck and got into a situation on a planet where the planet's falling apart and my crew's injured beside me and there's a couple of bad guys that are in front of me that are like being jerks and i've got the only phaser and i was like what would my character do and it's this his crew is his family so i have to protect them so i actually tossed them the phaser and said all right then you guys need to get us out of here because this planet's about to fall apart and at that moment that i used my determination to persuade them to do it and from that moment forward, that character, his entire career changed because now he was on a command track, which is never where I thought I was going to take that character when I built it. It was one situation with one value that changed, and now he's the XO of the ship. It's like these elements just are so tied to narrative that you you sometimes can't even foresee 
what the future is going to be three episodes from now because right. your character always changes. One thing I would recommend for anyone that wants to check out how values work um, is to download the character packs for Discovery. I can tell you right now that for s- seasons one, two, and three, I wrote Saru from season one to season two to season three, and you can see how his values change every single season yeah. like he's just a little bit different each season and like maybe he loses one value one season and gains a new one and then the next season he loses two values and they change to something yeah. else if you are if that is a part of the game that you are struggling with i highly encourage that look at the character packs because nice our direction when we write them is to make it look like they're leveling up through the star trek yeah. adventure system that is such a great example of how values and, deter- and the determination for a character changes. Saru is a fabulous example uh, for anybody that's watching Discovery. That's brilliant. I was thinking about Kirk in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, where he was at the beginning of that. Don't trust them. When he was speaking about the Klingons compared to where he was at the end, at the end of that journey, when he realized that we've got to help these people, we've got to do this thing. When he realized that his prejudice was being used because prejudice is a value. Not not all values are great, right? So Kirk was a character who for a whole host of reasons is depicted as having a very anti-Klingon prejudice and throughout his, his his character iterations, very pronounced in the movies, more so pronounced than in the series. But, but that clearly was challenged throughout Star Trek six. And on the back end of it, when he realized that it was being used to the detriment of everyone, that his prejudice was infecting it. Like he became a target to be used simply because of who he was that and his actions following that changed everything about that character. As I reflect on all of Star Trek through all the various series and all the various movies, I see values changing everywhere. And I'm like, wow, absolute brilliance absolute brilliance the only exception possibly is harry kim because he didn't do much yeah, yeah all right. I, I love garrett Wang, and i actually like the character but he clearly didn't change much throughout his seven-year mission versus we were talking about picard earlier think about the trajectory of Worf as a character and that's all that i will say about that because picard is on the air right now and but anybody out there listening if you're not watching picard you need to be watching picard because there are some things that happen in season three that are probably some of my best track ever so that's think about the values the value changes in ds9 that all the characters go through mm. nog rom quark let's go <laughs> there were no static characters in ds9 which is probably one of the reasons why i love that particular series so much there just was no I think odo ironically was probably the most static I think you're right, and I think that was the juxtaposition that they were going for. The one who can change the most is likely the one who will remain the most consistent. Yeah. Odo definitely had character changes. He's more stoic, and they weren't as obvious, but just the fact that he eventually realized that he liked Quark was character growth. There there was pieces in there. I just don't think that there were values, though. I don't think that there were values that changed. Odo remained Odo. Okay. Um, one thing one thing that I do want to add to the conversation is you also have your captain's role ability, which affects determination, right? Mm-hmm. The captain, if he or she are in someone's ear and are basically giving them, you need to do this. You are capable. You are the best of the best. The, um, pep talk. the, the captain gives them their determination. That's a really cool narrative bit that can happen over comms. It can happen while you're sitting right next to someone, et cetera, et cetera. That's really cool. And then the XO has something similar where they can spend three momentum to make sure someone's determination is not spent so they can actually use it multiple times. So narratively speaking, to hear that your commanders, the people that are in charge of you, are pushing you to be the best you can be and to work through something and to not give up, I think is very narrative as well. 
My favorite thing about determination, my absolute favorite thing about it, is that it can't just be used whenever you want to, that it has to be triggered by a value or another crew member's abilities like the captain's ability. I don't remember if there was another one, another person who could impact determination. Because it's so important and so powerful, and it is the finite resource that you want to save for that pivotal moment, not momentum. And I actually got to use my determination in the game, which was really cool. I was able to tie my value to the situation because there were a bunch of people that could have been wrongly accused with somebody. But I've got, that's as far as I went. <laughs> there, there's no spoiler in that. But one of my values is that everybody, no matter how humble, deserves a fair chance. So I had to find a way to get through the situation so anybody who was innocent didn't wind up. Yeah. So I used my point of determination to roll my whole dice pool and turned three failures to three into three successes. And that is what helped me finally figure out the last bit of the plot to the game. Yeah. And it was fantastically satisfying. That's the best way to, to the best way to sum it up, to have that available, have it tie into my abilities. So that gives me a reason to dig deep. It's not like I'm saying, oh, I got to win me this game of hopscotch. I've got a reason to dig deep. And that's what makes it special. Yeah. You, you said something very powerful there, Glenn, that it was fantastically satisfying. And I think that's a great summation of all three of these mechanics, the way in which momentum gets used whether it be the way it's purchased and then used, but as you build that pool and it builds successes upon successes and gets utilized, the way threat, despite its title, can be used to just create interesting scenes. Little challenges, there's subspace distortion, so your communicators are spotty. Or shield modulation is off just a bit. So you're, Inability you're, to lock onto somebody, yeah. Yeah, you can't lock onto somebody, so you can't transport. Or you have to use shuttles to give, and that could narratively give your con officer something to do with that OA mission. We need our best pilot to get through this, this, this challenging weather, so the best pilot leaves the big ship to pilot the shuttle down to the planet below. Those are the kinds of things that I think that these kinds of metacurrencies can really accomplish fair above boards with a lowered GM shield. And I think that's just brilliant. And then you add in determination, how it so uniquely exemplifies or challenges the core and essential elements and beliefs of each character individually when these things are used. They are satisfying. And I will add this as I close it. The fact that threat can be used to save the party if necessary is awesome. We are at the end of our time this evening. Al, thank you so very much for popping on here and talk, having this conversation with us so that other folks can go oh, ahead. It was and, awesome. This was a great conversation so that our listeners can go ahead and find uh, find more of you being brilliant. What's the best way for our, our listeners to find you? So yeah, first, thanks for having me. It's re really great to talk with other people who love gaming and that are starting to open their eyes to the 2D20 system in general, because it, it really changed my idea of what role-playing could be back when COVID hit. And it I had to take a one-year furlough from work and I explored this system. And then it was what drove me through that year at home was writing for Star Trek Adventures and creating a game. And it, it just reinvigorated my whole RPG career. So um, started a podcast, so, so I get it. <laughs> That's yeah, right. Yep, <laughs> yep. My, my socials are at GM underscore Admiral. Admiral, actually, is how I to say it. And I do stream a Learn to Play session once a month on Twitch. I share that out on my socials. And uh, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter. I'm very active on the Modifius Discord, at least in the Star Trek vicinity. And hopefully, by the end of this year, we'll be getting out to some cons to meet some fans and talk about uh, new releases. I'm hoping that I can make PAX Unplugged work this year. Awesome. I'll be excited to get out and just meet everyone. Al, I just want to shout you out a little bit here and just say, tell us about your new game. Also uh, in the 2D20 system. Yeah, uh, yeah we got to hear about that. And I, you have work that's part of the Lower Decks campaign set that's coming out later this summer. Is that correct? Yeah, so I wrote, I was one of, I think there was about 
six of us that put together the Lower Decks campaign book. And we're really excited about that. The hype is real. And I know it's not for everyone, but it's pretty exciting. And then we have some more releases coming throughout the year that I think everybody's going to be really excited about. So for those that don't know, Modifius, during the whole OGL fiasco, put together something called the World Builders Program. And this is basically something that's been going on with lots of different companies using drive-through RPG or DMs Guild. It's all the same company, but specifically on drive-through RPG, Modifius has opened up a way to use the 2D20 system to create your own games. And it's fairly new off the line. I think it came out four months ago, maybe five months ago. And so I put together a game called Sentience. And the concept about Sentience is you role play as a terraforming robot that was left behind on a planet. And for whatever reason, many of the robots on that planet gain sentience. And so it's all about creating a society from scratch, learning how to deal with emotions and things like that. The skill system is really neat. Basically, you have your core protocols, which is what you were designed with, what you were designed for as a robot. And then you have emotions and you determine what emotions are regulating the different protocols that are in your system. So when you form a dice pool, it's emotion plus protocol. So it's a pretty cool system. Values are super cool in sentience in that if you end up losing all of your values, you revert back to being a robot and you lose your sentience. Like you lose your sentience altogether. It's a really cool system. I'm excited about it. We're at a hundred downloads for the core rule book. And I think 125 for the quick start all available on drive RPG.com free. Awesome. Nice. Excellent. All right. Let's go ahead and take a look and see what we have going on here. Yeah. So this week began actually our airing of Luinica's run through the starter set. That's going to continue this coming Tuesday. And we are, at least on our main episodes here on Fridays, we're taking a little bit of a break from Star Trek Adventures. In case you haven't noticed, there are some other game systems out there that some things have been happening in over the last couple of months. So next week we have an episode where we're going to break down some stuff with Project Black Flag, the the Pathfinder rule set, and a, a little company based out of Seattle named Wizards the coast that's also been doing some things out in the industry. We're going to be taking a look at some of the stuff that's been going on with some of those companies while we've been uh, here talking about PS's 2D20 system in Star Trek. That'll be a that'll be a good time. Thanks again one more time, Al Spader, for joining us tonight. Really glad to have you on here. Hope you come back again soon. I'm sure that there these episodes have been a lot of fun to go through, and certainly uh, talking through it has helped us pick up some of the nitty gritty of the of the rule system. So we'd have to, we'd love to go ahead and have you back sometime in the near future. Yeah, and thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Al, always fun. We have to definitely have uh, two conversations in one week more frequently. Great sharing the digital screen with you again. And at some point, we got to get together in person and, and roll some dice. So I think I look forward to it. Me too. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And we'll be back next week talking about the industry news. Until then, have a great night. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. Join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. You can also stay in touch by subscribing to our Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram at TT Journeys, joining our Facebook group, Tabletop Journeys, or by sending an email directly to podcast at ttjourneys.com. Our full episodes come out every week on Friday. And every Tuesday features actual play and gameplay showcase episodes. Looking for early access? You can support the show and get episodes before everyone else at www.patreon.com forward slash ttjourneys. Check it out today and see all the awesome benefits we bring to our supporters. Lastly, if you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, or Audible, We would really appreciate it if you would like and subscribe to the podcast on that platform. Thank you for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And we bid you fair tides, friends, for Legends Await.